My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. And um, oh, and I thank you for being here. It's a, it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be, be with you here. Uh, I want to ask you to start by thinking of a moment or an experience that you wanted to last forever. Okay, a moment or an experience that you wanted to last forever. You don't have to share it. I'm just, just getting your, your minds going, memories going. Maybe it was something joyful that comes to mind. A few weeks ago, my wife Carolyn planned a weekend getaway for me with some of my guy friends in anticipation of my 40th birthday. She organized everything. She sent out all the invites. She secured the location. She bought the groceries. She booked us a climbing session. She knocked it out of the park is, is the, the conclusion of that. I had a great time. Uh, good friends, good food, great, beautiful location. But the part I wanted to last forever was the freedom from wondering if I would get woken up by my kids. <laughs> that was the moment. That was the experience, the feeling in myself that I was just like, I want this to last forever. I slept so well those few nights. What might a moment like that be for you? Maybe it was a first kiss or a first job or a wedding or welcoming a child into your family. Something joyful. Uh, maybe it's something a little bit more solemn, a little bit more somber. I remember the last phone call I had with uh, my college best friend before he passed away. I was so grateful for that moment. I was grateful for that exchange. I was grateful to be able to communicate to him as much as he was able to comprehend it in that moment how much I loved him and how much I would miss him. Now, I don't think I'd want to relive it, but I wish I could have had more time. I didn't even know that that would be the last time I would talk to him. And maybe that's a common factor, that we, we often don't even fully grasp the depth and the glory of those moments until they're gone if at all. You know, so often we're, we're either living in the past or we're living in the future. Anytime but right now. Any place but right here. And so let me begin by inviting you to be here now. Let's just take a moment. Let's close our eyes. We all come in carrying stuff. The morning is only a few hours old, but things accumulate. We've been carrying things from the weekend, whether good feelings or good vibes or troubling ones, challenging ones, tiring ones. So even as we take in deep breaths, breathing in the air that God has given to us, maybe be reminded, as St. Augustine said, the Lord is closer to you than you are to yourself. So as we breathe in, God is nearer to us than the air that we are breathing. Whatever we are carrying with us, God knows it. God does not diminish it. God takes it on, holds it for us, holds it with us. And maybe in this moment you might ask, God, help me to be present now. Help me to be here now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we begin the second half of Mark's gospel. We're in chapter 9 of 16 chapters. 
Last week, Pastor Matthew walked us through a really important turn in the story. So for the first seven chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus heals people and he casts out demons and walks on water, calms the storm, feeds thousands, miracles and power all over the place, people flocking to him from all over. But what we encountered last week in chapter 8, immediately after Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one of God, is that Jesus begins to talk about the path of suffering and of death that he is destined to walk. It's quite a shift from popularity and power to suffering and death. No wonder the disciples were confused. And yet this is the characteristic of the second half of the gospel. We are heading to the cross. And indeed, the theme of following Jesus and the concept of Jesus as God's Messiah, as God's chosen one, it cannot be understood except from the other side of the cross and the resurrection because Jesus' power is the power of a love that is willing to sacrifice, a love that is willing to suffer for the good of the other. It is a power for, it is a power with, not a power over. Now, as a reminder of the context, Mark's gospel was one of the first documents in the New Testament that was written. It may well have been written to Christians in crisis in the capital city of the Roman Empire. Christians experiencing increasing persecution for their faith, even as they were still trying to figure out what even this faith was. The original hearers of Mark's good news about Jesus may not have been too far removed from our situation of figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in the belly of the beast what it means to be a disciple in the presence of so many forces that seem outside of our control. Learning from Jesus how to live and how to love when the world around you and even perhaps the world within you seems to be falling apart. Our passage today, it begins, it says, six days after the events we heard about last week. Jesus asking the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter naming him as the Messiah but misunderstanding the concept for us on this side of the cross and the resurrection with two millennia of spiritual foremothers and forefathers and countless words and ink expended, perhaps even with a faith heritage that we bring from family or friends or awareness we've gleaned from our culture or our country, there's, there's a lot we can take for granted about what it means to follow Jesus. In the last week, Matthew brought us back to the words of Jesus, explaining that to be his disciple is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. It is to walk in the way of the suffering, sacrificing, and resurrected Messiah, because that is the way of love, and it is the way that leads to life and goodness. And so today I have for you six observations from this passage on what it means to follow Jesus. First, to follow Jesus is to see things the way they really are to see things the way they really are. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain where they were alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes were amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking to Jesus, and Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know how to respond, for the three of them were terrified. This is the scene that's often called the transfiguration. 
And that verb transfigure simply means to transform into something more beautiful, something more elevated, especially in a spiritual way. And that word that's used here in the Greek is metamorphothete. Metamorphothe in Greek, from which we get the word metamorphosis. Transformation, growth, maturation. And coming immediately after Jesus' description of the way of the cross, the way of suffering, this is the affirmation of God to him and of him to his disciples. This is God's confirmation that what he said is right. What he said is good. And yet I love what the 14th century Eastern Orthodox theologian Gregory Palamas had to say about this. He said, Christ was transfigured not by receiving something he did not have before, nor by being changed into something he previously was not, but as manifesting to his disciples what he really was. What he really was. They got a glimpse of the glory of God. They got a glimpse of Jesus in all of his fullness, fully God and fully man, supported by the two giants of Israel's salvation history, Elijah the prophet and Moses the liberator. Now, a scene like this it can be challenging for us modern folks to wrap our minds around. Like, what, you know, what, what, hap what actually happened and how did, it, how did it happen? How do we explain that rationally, you know, scientifically? When the short answer is, I don't know. What I do know is there are moments in life where a revelation of God or a revelation from God, it changes our entire perspective. Even if we have to spend the rest of our lives unpacking it. You might have had in your story a moment like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, where God's grace broke into your life in a sudden and unmistakable way. Or you might have had a journey of small revelations, divine insight. Either way, you see things the way they really are. You begin to see things the way they really are, and nothing can be the same again. Like the truth that every human being is made in the image of God, bestowed with the dignity of the divine, called and commissioned by the Creator, each one of us, a soul lasting into eternity. We could spend a lifetime trying to live out the implications of that. As the author C.S. Lewis would put it, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you were to say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We are made in the image of God, each one of us a soul that lasts into eternity. This is the way things really are, and it changes everything. Or how about Jesus' own words in Matthew 25, that, that he is found in those in need, the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, the, the naked, the unhoused, the sick, and the imprisoned, and that what we do for them is what we do for him, and that that is how Jesus will know that we follow him. This is the way things really are. It changes everything. Or the words we heard earlier from St. Augustine of Hippo, the Lord is closer to us than we are to ourselves. 
This is the way things really are. And it changes everything. These are moments when heaven encounters earth and, and leaves a mark and starts a ripple. You know, I think of moments in prayer that I've wanted to last forever. Moments where I felt the tangible presence of God in a way I couldn't explain. Over 10 years ago when I was discerning my call to pastoral ministry, I was praying about whether I should take the risk and commit to, to this new church plant in a city I thought I'd only be in for a year. I would get moments of deja vu. A lot. Like a few times a week. And sometimes it wasn't just a feeling that I'd been here before. I would actually remember having dreamt years before that I would be in that situation, in that moment. It was wild. And through these moments, I sensed God affirming the path I was on, as if to say with a nudge, see, I was preparing you for this all along. And these divine hints are part of why I'm here now. And those deja vu moments, they dried up a couple of years after that, back to a sort of more normal, I guess, rate. I don't know what your rate is, but for me, it's like once a year-ish. Um, God was like, you found the road. You don't need signs pointing to the road anymore. But I do miss the clarity that I had in those moments sometimes. Sometimes I wish I had them back. Here in Mark, Mark's gospel, Peter offers to build shelters, shrines for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Maybe so they can stay there. They can stay in that moment. Now, we, we know he doesn't know what he's talking about because Mark tells us that. And to be fair, he explains that they're terrified, which all of us probably would be. Uh, not every encounter with God induces warm fuzzies. But I recognize the desire. I, I want to stay on the mountaintop. I want to stay in the glory. I want to be in the places where God's affirmation is obvious. But as we know, and as we will see, life is more than just those moments. Second observation, to follow Jesus is to obey Him. Verse 7, Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I dearly love. Listen to Him. This is the call to discipleship. God's word saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Which begs the question, well, what, what is he saying here? Well, we might long for Jesus' insight and instruction into our current situation, into our current predicament. Maybe instead, though, the question we ought to ask is, what has he already said? What has Jesus already said? Love God, love neighbor, love enemy, receive the Holy Spirit, pray and fast, care for the least of these as you would care for me, make disciples baptizing them and teaching them, them to obey everything I have commanded you. The implication being that we too will obey everything Jesus has commanded us. Now I get it, obey is not a word we like nowadays. You know, many of us carry an innate suspicion of authority, of institutions, basically of anyone telling us what to do. And, and for good reason, right? We, we've seen the damage that can be and has been done by those in authority who ended up abusing their authority. How that word, that command, obey, has been used to abuse and to oppress spiritually and emotionally in relationships and marriages and churches and communities and families. You must obey. You must submit, usually to the person saying it. Immeasurable damage 
and countless scars have been caused by a stifling of questions by those in positions of power and authority. And so it makes sense that when we hear that word, when I hear that word, obey, there's a cascade of other thoughts and emotions that come along with it. It makes sense. God understands that. Yet it also makes sense to me that the path to life goes through obedience to the one who is life. It makes sense to me that the path to life goes through the one who is the life. You can't get there otherwise. You can't get to fitness without exertion, without getting off the couch. You can't get to love without giving something up, without sacrifice. You can't get to being a church without also being outside of your comfort zone. In John's Gospel, there's a moment in chapter 6 where Jesus says some hard words, preaches some hard words, and many of his followers leave. They walk away. It's too hard for them. And in a moment of vulnerability, Jesus turns to his followers, the ones that remain. He says, will you leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So where do you go for the words of eternal life. Where do you go to know what is life? What is the good life? We all have an ethic of life, something that guides us, something that tells us what is good and what is not good, what it is to be blessed, what kind of life is worth living. What is your guide? Who is your guide? To what or to whom are you obedient? Is it the paradigm of defining yourself by what you do? by how productive you are? Are you obedient to the comparison game? To the algorithms, the marketers? To your addictions? To your traumas? This is why Jesus' question from last week is so important. Who do you say I am? If Jesus is the one who is the life, then I'm gonna listen to him as best as I can. Observation number three. To follow Jesus is to live most of our lives at the foot of the mountain. To live most of our lives at the foot of the mountain. When Jesus and his uh, three disciples come back down the mountain, they return to a scene. The other nine are surrounded by a large crowd and they're being argued at by some experts of the law and it turns out that someone had a son who was possessed by a spirit that would not allow him to speak and exhibited uh, what we might describe as epileptic symptoms. Now, I may not need to say this, but for the sake of clarity, what the text is not saying is that epilepsy is the result of a demonic spirit. What is apparent is that whatever is afflicting this boy is an impure spirit because we're told that when, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a fit. And so the, the boy's father had brought his son, to the disciples for healing, but they were unable to do so. On the mountaintop, God's glory was radiant. Right? On the mountaintop, God's affirmation is clear. We want to stay on the mountaintop. We want to bask in that goodness. We want to dwell in clarity, don't we? Not least because we know what awaits us at the bottom of the mountain. Right, where the need is great and the faith is small. 
where we don't know fully, where we don't understand fully, where we see through a distorted lens, where we can't always fix the problem even when we think we're supposed to be able to. Even when we're pretty sure Jesus told us that we would be able to. Let me ask you, what is at the foot of the mountain for you? What is the mess at the bottom of the mountain? What awaits you when you walk out these doors? Where are you feeling the great needs and small faith? Few resources, the not enoughness, not enough time, not enough money, not enough energy. Where are you desperately seeking clarity or understanding or affirmation? What problems or obstacles or challenges lie before you that you're not sure if you'll be able to overcome and maybe you're struggling with guilt for even not having more faith even if you know in theory that God is a God of grace and not of guilt. Here's the deal. Not only are those mountaintop experiences meant to sustain us for the valley seasons, but God is with us at every foot, every step you take. God is with us every step you take. God is the God of the mountaintop, and God is with us in the valleys. And every point in between, as the psalmist sing, if I went up to heaven, you would be there, and if I went down to the grave, you would be there too. Or as we sang earlier from Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, what? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Most of our lives are lived at the foot of the mountain. It's a fact. It's what life is most of the time, this side of Christ's return. It is where we are called to be. And yet wherever we are called to be, we can know, we can trust that God is with us. Every step of the way. Point number four, to follow Jesus is to live the paradox of faith. In verse 22, after explaining his son's situation to Jesus, the boy's father says, if you can do anything, help us. So is compassion. And Jesus said to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. And at that, the boy's father cried out, I, I have faith, help my lack of faith. This last verse is our theme verse for one of our most popular series, My Most Important Question, where members of our church community share their biggest wrestlings with faith, echoing the father's cry, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the paradox, as one theologian would put it. The man both believes and does not believe. He believes but does not have faith as a possession to which he can appeal, and he knows he must pray an expression of faith for faith, which he does not claim to have. We may not always know how to navigate that. We may not always feel like we're doing it right. Faith and doubt, desperation and hope, they are inseparable for this in-between time that we live. And to be honest, this is my confession and my prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I bet that statement resonates with many of you as well. I 
I trust you, God. Help my lack of trust. I, I do hope. Help my hopelessness. Following Jesus is not to have all of the answers. In fact, the longer I walk the way of Jesus, the more I realize I don't know. Now, I remember the first time I heard a professor say that I was probably 20 years old. And I thought to myself, well, why am I learning from a guy who doesn't know things? Who's admitting what he doesn't know. And what I have learned over the years is that it is those who can admit what they do not know who are truly wise. Not talking about myself, talking about the other people that say that. But what I've also learned is what I said earlier, that to follow Jesus is to walk with Jesus, the one who is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. When he says, when Jesus says all things are possible for the one who has faith, now that could be interpreted as Jesus asking the boy's father if he has enough faith, right? After all, he does say later on that, that faith that is as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. But it could also be understood as Jesus saying, I have faith. I believe this can happen. All things are possible for me. When you do not know if you have enough faith, let me give you mine. When you do not have the strength, let me carry you. And that also lines up with what we know about Jesus and about the kingdom of God. First, that it is a collaboration and we are not doing the bulk of the work. And second, as we've said many times before in this room, it is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith, and that is Jesus that saves and liberates and delivers us. And also, we do have a part to play. Number five, to follow Jesus is to be about the work of God's kingdom. Jesus casts out the unclean spirit. Jesus heals the boy. Now, we may not do all the things Jesus did in the way he did them. We are not, after all, saviors. We are not messiahs. We may not even feel like we have the faith to believe for all the things we want to believe for these messes we find ourselves in at the bottom of the mountain. But when Jesus calls us to follow him, when God calls us to listen to him, we know that we are invited into the work of bringing healing and restoration and life wherever we go and wherever we stay. Every week here we pray, May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every week we seek out ways in which we might partner with God's Spirit in doing kingdom work in every life and every sphere of life. Where is the Spirit at work around you? Ushering a bit more up there, down here. How is your Spirit at work in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your city, with your friends, your family, with your co-workers, in and through our church? How is the Spirit moving in the personal and the communal and the social and the political? What is the kingdom work of healing and restoration and life that God is inviting you to join in? We are all invited to join in. And six, to follow Jesus is to pray. 
Verse 28, after Jesus went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we throw out this spirit? Jesus answered, throwing this kind of spirit out requires prayer. Requires prayer. Now in Mark's gospel, we're told several times that Jesus goes to pray. And usually it takes place before a particularly important task. Preparing for ministry by confronting the devil in the wilderness, choosing his disciples, those who would carry on the mission, or toward the end of the story, ultimately choosing and submitting his own will to that of his Father. Monumental tasks. In prayer, we connect ourselves with the source of all life and healing and power. Years ago, one of my, my music instructors used to use the phrase sonic space. Sonic space to encourage us musicians to be listening to each other as we played together. He would he, say that knowing when not to play is as important as knowing when to play. Because if everyone plays all the time, you have noise. Constant noise. Constant loud noise. We need to be able to listen and collaborate. Listen and co-create. Prayer is making space for relationship with the one who transforms. The one who has the power. The one who believes even when we can't. Don't know how to. Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, The purpose of prayer is not the same as the purpose of speech. The purpose of speech is to inform. The purpose of prayer is to partake. To partake. Sometimes that partaking is to offer up to God the things that we are celebrating and the things we are weeping over. But perhaps that partaking is also making space to listen. Making space to receive, to be filled up. Maybe this partaking is to know the glory of God in every moment. To find a way to see the way things really are. The glory of God in every moment. Not just the obvious ones. Tuning our awareness in, into the, 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 the fact that God really is our strength, that, that God really is with us every step of the way, up or down. Now let me offer just a few practical suggestions. Uh, recently, Carolyn and I have started, and by recently I mean last week, we started trying to end our days together with a 10-minute guided prayer from the Lexio 365 app from the 24-7 prayer team in the UK. And when I'm in a good flow, I start my day with one as well. You could try the, the Pray As You Go app, a daily uh, prayer from our siblings in the Ignatian and Jesuit tra tra traditions. Even some of the, the headspace meditations or other mindfulness exercises, they, they can just be helpful for us to stop and, and not be doing, not be scrolling, not be watching something, just to slow down, make space. If you want to write, you could use the questions in our Mark reading guide that our staff diligently prepared for you. Just one question a day to, to ponder, to think about. When it comes to prayer, minister and womanist scholar Renita Weems offers, she offers the analogy of timeouts, like for kids. Okay? This is what she writes. She says, timeouts are for the precious little souls they need a period of time to compose themselves, to gather their thoughts and calm down and think about what they're doing and find a way back into the give and take of intimacy. Perhaps God is not silent, 
but rather waiting. Waiting for human beings to gather thoughts, compose themselves, regain their speech, and find their way back into the give and take of intimacy with God. As with most great communicators, God knows that the point of silence and the pause between sentences is not to give the audience the chance to fill the silence with empty babbling, but to help create more depth to the conversation. What if we were to step into this space? When we encounter demonic forces that leave us Jesus followers feeling inept and incapable and incompetent, speak those lies to us. When we feel paralyzed at a status quo that often reflects more of the brokenness of sin and suffering in the world than in our lives, let us make a listening, receiving space in which we discover the richness and the depth and the power and the goodness and the glory and the grace and the love of God. An attentive, gracious space in which we find that the faith of Jesus is enough to carry us through. A joyful, surprising space in which we are handed the invitation into this seemingly upside down but actually right side up way of living. Following the one who lived the most fulfilling, the most beautiful, the most good, the most true life anyone has ever lived. A rejuvenating and replenishing space in which we discover the strength to follow Jesus. To walk a path that will lead through suffering and sacrifice and in death in order to birth new life in us and through us. What if we were to step into those spaces? I love this poem by Mary Oliver. She says, praying doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence into which another voice may speak. Would you pray with me? I want us to take just a few moments of silence. What has God been saying to you? I said a lot of words, but what's, what's important is what God said to you. That might be different for you. It will be different for you than it, was, than it will be for your neighbor. That's okay. What is it that you need to take away from this place? What is it that you need to take into your week? What is it that you need to take into your mountaintop space, your mountain bottom places? Just take a moment to listen.
Because so much of our life is filled with noise, static. So many voices clamoring for our attention and our energy. We feel pulled in so many different directions. And sometimes we're not even sure which way is up, which voice is yours. God, would you help us to, each one of us, to better understand and discern and know and sense and feel your presence with us in our everyday lives. With all of those things that we, that we lifted up to you at the beginning of this, this time, the challenges, the dreams, the fears, the hopes, the messes, the anxieties, the joys. Would you help us to, to see you in them, to recognize you in them, to seek you out in them? To see things the way they really are. We pray these things in the name of our Lord, our pioneer and perfecter, Jesus Christ. Amen.